First Samuel chapter 30 this morning. I'm, I'm so often amazed at what, what section of Scripture we come to during certain times when things are going on in our congregation, whatever it may be, and we're just, you know, going through a book, studying it, but God knows what we need when we need it, and I feel that way this morning as we continue the, the story of David. We'll look at verse 7 through the rest of the chapter here in just a moment. Soon after Jesus Christ ascended back into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, there was a man named Saul. Not the King Saul that we've been reading about, but Saul of Tarsus. And he was a man that absolutely terrorized the church that Jesus Christ started. He was a terrifying figure. When the deacon Stephen was stoned to death, Saul was keeping watch over the coats of the men who were throwing the stones and killing this man, and he was agreeing with this execution and approving of it. Saul would storm into the homes of Christians, and he would forcefully drag men and women out of their homes and put them in prison. He would receive authority from the Jewish religious leaders to do the same thing even outside of Jerusalem. He breathed murderous threats upon the church, and he was doing everything within his power to annihilate that movement. But you know the story, right? Hopefully. When Saul was on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians there, he quite literally and spiritually saw the light. And when Saul met Jesus Christ, he was a changed man. His life did a complete 180. Not a complete 360, the way some people say. That's, you can do that math in your head later. Saul went from being a terrorist to being a missionary. From being someone who persecuted Christians to someone who started preaching the gospel. He would be the man that, that God would use to write a large portion of the New Testament. He completely changed when he met Christ. When you experience God's mercy and grace and love in your life, it should change you. That's true at salvation. <coughs> but it's true after salvation as well. When maybe you have a time in your life when God's grace and mercy abounds in your life and it humbles you and it, and it changes you yet again. And one area in your life where that change should be noticed is in the way you treat other people. And we'll see that in David's life today. I want to remind you quickly of the background since it's been a week or so since we were in 1 Samuel. Remember that David's fear of King Saul drove him to the Philistines for asylum. And he stayed there for over a year. He was given protection there. He was given his own city by King Achish. King Achish gave him Ziklag and he and his men took over that city, and they became very wealthy through their raids. But then if you remember, the Philistines marched on Israel to attack them. And King Achish told David, you're coming with me, and you're going to fight for me against your own countrymen. But by the mercy of God, David's hand was never even forced in that situation. He never even had to make a decision about what he would do when the battle came because God mercifully delivered him out of that situation because the Philistine generals didn't trust him. But then upon returning back to Ziklag, David and his men found their city burnt and their families gone. And it was during that time 
that we're told that David strengthened himself in the Lord. God's mercy delivered him from one situation and His grace got him through the next situation. And remember that that juxtaposition between David and Saul, that when Saul was greatly distressed, he went to a witch. When David is greatly distressed, he went to the Lord. And that's where we left off. And so let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 7 and 8, right here in the midst of this terrible trial in David's life. He turns to God for help and direction. Verse 7 says, And David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray thee, bring me hither the ephod. And Abiathar brought thither the ephod to David. And David inquired at the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue. For thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. David used the the proper avenues during that time to to seek the Lord's will and to acquire uh, at him both the priest and the ephod, and he truly asked for God's direction during this tough time, which might lead us to to the thought or the question of, of in our lives, how do we do that today? How do I seek God's will for my life today? Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law, right? He told some of the Jews, I didn't come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. So we don't have priests like they did in the Old Testament now. We don't have these priestly garments that we use to discern the Lord's will. So what do we do in our lives when we have tough times and we have trials and we need to seek God's guidance? What do we do? Well, one thing is that you need to turn to God in prayer through your high priest, Jesus Christ. We can approach His throne of grace boldly because of our Savior. Prayer is powerful in the life of a Christian. Don't ever underestimate the power of prayer and don't ever act like you're apologetic to someone who say, well, I'll be praying for you, that's all I can do. That's the most you can do is to pray for someone. Don't ever underestimate the power of prayer, but don't also underestimate the power of God's Word. That's when God gets His say, so to speak. Prayer is when we can pour our hearts out to God, ask for His help, let Him know what we're feeling and all of that. But when we read His Word, He gets to respond to us. Have you ever been a part of a one-sided conversation? Some of y'all are smiling and nodding. I used to have a friend who talked so much. I mean nonstop. I cannot explain to you how much this this guy talked. That some of our other friends, we, we jokingly called him earmuffs. Because when he was around, you just wanted to put earmuffs on so you wouldn't have to, to mess with it. You think, well, that's mean. Well, maybe it was, but if you were there, you'd have, you'd have called him earmuffs too. That's not the way our fellowship with God should be. It shouldn't be one-sided. And don't misunderstand me. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be praying without ceasing and letting your requests be made known unto God, but you should also entrench yourself in God's Word where He has perfectly revealed Himself to us and given us everything about Him that He wants us to know. So pray and dive into God's Word, knowing that His Holy Spirit is with you. He's within your heart. If you're a saved individual, He's indwelling you. And ask for wisdom. 
James told his readers, if you ask God for wisdom in faith, He will give it to you. He'll give you a bunch of it, and He won't get mad that you asked for it. He gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not. That's what that means. So pray, ask for wisdom, and, and, and dive into God's Word when you need help. God's Word's not going to tell you if you need to eat at Chick-fil-A or Larry's Pizza tomorrow. But it will give you direction in your life as far as how to serve God and how to treat others, spiritual direction and things like that. More important than what meal should I eat. But God's Word will tell you that God will provide that meal for you. Don't neglect God's Word. God answered David when David inquired of God through, through the priest and through the ephod. And God said, go after him. Pursue after the Amalekites and you're going to be victorious in this rescue mission. And so look at verse 9 and 10. Once David heard this, he was assured of God's will. He obeyed. He did not question at all. Verse 9, so David went, he and the 600 men that were with him, and came to the brook Besor, where those that were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, for 200 abode behind, which were so faint that they could not go over the brook Besor. This phrase, so faint, the only time this word is used in the entire Old Testament is in this story to refer to these men. These men in Arkansas language were dead tired. They were beyond exhausted. It's not that surprising. Remember what's happened the last few days in their lives. They marched to war. They got sent home, so they had to march back. That was a three-day march, if you want to look back and remember that. And then upon arriving back at home, they spend every ounce of emotional energy lamenting and weeping and bemoaning the fact that their city is burnt, their families are gone. They even thought about stoning their leader, David, who then inquires of God and says, God says, let's go get him. <sighs> okay. These men are wore out, and 200 of them absolutely can't take another step. And so they stay by this brook. They stay with some of, some of the supplies. The rest of the men push forward. Um, it would have been about 16 miles between Ziklag and this brook Basor. So all of the marching, then they've got to run or march 16 more miles. Some of you that have run long distances know how long 16 miles is. It's not... It's not one mile. It's a long way to run. These men are flat out spent. But 400 men and David, they move forward. And, and look at verse 11 through 15. As they're tracking down these Amalekites, in the providence of God, they run upon a stranger. Look at verse 11. And they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave him bread. And he did eat. And they made him drink water. And they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit came again to him, for he had eaten no bread nor drunk any water three days and three nights. David said unto him, To whom belongest thou? And whence art thou? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me because three days agone I fell sick. We made an invasion upon the south of the Carathites and upon the coast which belongeth to Judah and upon the south of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. Hmm. 
Verse 15, And David said to him, Canst thou bring me down to this company? And he said, Swear unto me by God that thou wilt neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will bring thee down to this company. These verses, this is one of the most important parts of this whole story. And not just because the Egyptian slave ended up helping David, but more so because David helped this man. Notice that before David even knew that this man could help him with his rescue mission, David helped this man. He didn't know who he was or where he was from or if he had any information that he could give. And he still helped this man. And that's important because David was not helping this man just to help himself. He wasn't helping this man with some larger selfish motive in the background. David helped this man because he needed help. And the author of 1 Samuel definitely draws our attention to this part of the story because of the meal that they give this man. This would have been far more than any soldier would have had as they're marching. And doesn't it seem almost random that the, that the writer would just include so much detail about the specifics of this food? It's almost like, get on with it. I don't care what you fed the Egyptian. I want to know, did you find your family? Get on with it. Let's get to the point. This is the point. Slow down and notice what David is doing. We're told so much detail here because it does slow us down and helps us to concentrate on David's actions. Think about this. When David is in the midst of perhaps the greatest personal trial of his life up to that point, he pauses to show mercy to a stranger. I don't know if I would have stopped my pursuit to help somebody I didn't know. Would you have, if your family was kidnapped, would you stop to help a stranger that obviously needed help? Whew. One author says, This incident with the unnamed Egyptian sojourner thus measures the circumference of David's soul. David was racked with emotional pain but he was not so wrapped up in his own problems that he could not help another person in need. We've seen David make some questionable decisions, and we've seen David do some amazing things. This is David at his best right now. He's in the middle of a gut-wrenching trial, but not so self-centered that he couldn't help someone else. I want you to listen to this. If you refuse to serve, to help, to love until everything in your life is perfect, then guess what? You will never serve and love and help. I'm going to brag on you for just a minute, but I don't want you to get the collective big head. So many of you have been going through trials of your own. And I know that. Some of them I know about. Some of them maybe I don't know about. We've had a lot of sickness in, in North Bryant. We've had people with deaths in their family, maybe other things like that. And yet, so many of you who, who have been going through your own trial have told me, Brother Matt, we're praying for you. Or even though your family's sick, you've, you've somehow made a meal for us and brought it to our house, even though y'all are in a trial. 
I told you, I thanked you earlier, but thank you is nothing. That pales in comparison to the love that this church has shown us. Even though your lives aren't perfect. Even though you have your own suffering and your own trial. Thank you so much for not waiting until your life was perfect to help us. That's the way our fellowship at North Bryan ought to be. Helping each other. Loving each other. Serving each other. That's how big our love ought to be. But our love for others shouldn't end when we walk out of these walls. It's not confined just to this group of people, but it ought to spread out to all of those around us, not just church members. What, what better witness of God's love can there be than to show help and grace and mercy to those who need it, even if you need it too? David needs God's mercy and grace right now like nobody's business. His family's been kidnapped. And yet he stops to help someone whose life is in danger because this man would have died had it not been for David and his men coming across that, that plane at that time. David helped someone while he was hurting. And you know what? It just so happened that this guy had some information. That's not a coincidence. That's God's providence. If David had a passed by, because I don't have time to help this guy, then he would have never learned all of this information. This man just so happened to be an Egyptian slave of an Amalekite, and without knowing that David's the king of Ziklag, he tells him, we burnt Ziklag. Could have been a really bad day for that man, right? But he was more than willing to help David as long as he was insured of his life. I don't blame that guy at all. If my master left me for dead and now this man was giving me a feast to help me out, I will tell him anything he wants to know. As long as you don't turn me back over to my master. As long as you don't kill me, I'll take you right to him. They abandoned me. I've got no loyalty to them. And so he tells David everything he needs to know leads David to the Amalekites. And so David's kindness here in this situation benefited everyone. It saved the life of the Egyptian. It's going to enable him to save his family. And it'll be something that God uses to bring, uh, bring about the prophecy that he told David that this rescue mission will be successful. God used this. So look at verse 16 through 20. And when he had brought him down, behold, they were spread abroad upon all the earth. That's the Amalekites eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken out of the land of the Philistines and out of the land of Judah. And David smote them from the twilight even unto the evening of the next day. And there escaped not a man of them save four hundred young men which rode upon camels and fled. And David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away. And David rescued his two wives. And there was nothing lacking to them, neither small nor great, neither sons nor daughters, neither spoil nor anything that, had taken, uh, that they had taken to them. David recovered all. And David took all the flocks and the herds which they drave before uh, those other cattle and said, This is David's spoil. The Amalekites were celebrating. They were intoxicated. They were dancing around, celebrating their great victory, not in battle formation, not ready for battle whatsoever. And David and his men absolutely massacred that army. Only 400 men escaped who, who could jump on a camel and ride away. I think it's interesting that 400 is exactly the same amount of men that David has with him. 
And that's, the, and that's the amount that flee from the Amalekites. And just as God told David, he recovered everything. Not one single wife was hurt. Not one single wife was missing. Not one single son couldn't be found. Not one single daughter was unaccounted for. Not one single goat was unaccounted for. Not one single garment was, was lost. He recovered all, and even more than that, he now has the spoil of the Philistines that they took. This would have been sizable wealth that David and his men have now taken over. You know, though, when there's wealth, sometimes there's greed, right? Look at verse 21 through 25. And David came to the 200 men, which were so faint that they could not follow David, whom they had uh, made also to abide at the brook Besor. They went forth to meet David and to meet the people that were with him. And when David came near to the people, he saluted them. Then answered all the wicked men and the men of Belial of those that went with David and said, Because they went not with us, we will not give them out of the spoil that we have recovered. Save to every man his wife and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. Then said David, Ye shall not do so, my brethren. With, what, uh, with that which the Lord hath given us, who hath preserved us and delivered the company that came against us into our hand. For who will hearken unto you in this matter? But, at, but as his part is that goeth down to the battle, so shall his part be that tarrieth by the stuff. They shall part alike. And it was so from that day forward that he made it a statute and an ordinance from Israel, or for Israel unto this day. Some of these men in David's group that are called these wicked men, men of, men of Belial, evil men, they did not want David to share the spoils of war with the 200 men that weren't strong enough to fight. You don't fight, you don't get any fruits. They didn't risk their lives like we did. They can have their families back, but then they need to go because they didn't risk their lives for you like we did, David. No gold, no jewelry, no livestock for them. That's ours. It's not fair for them to get the same uh, part that we get when all they did was take a nap while we went and fought. And David absolutely does not support that at all. And he gave reasons why in verse 23, and if you can look at the verse again. Number one, the first reason David doesn't support this is because they cannot take credit for this victory. It's God's victory. He said, God gave you this stuff it's not yours to decide really what to do with it. It's God's. You need to be thankful. It is wrong to be selfish and greedy with a gift from God. And he teaches his men that. He also says to the men who have fought, you've already received a much greater blessing than the spoils of war. Notice he says God's preserved you. He preserved them in battle. Wouldn't you think that being alive is blessing enough? And yet you guys are being selfish about some cows and goats and clothes and gold? Is your life meaningless to you? And the third reason, he says, is that God delivered the enemy into their hands. Victory is a great blessing, guys. Don't overlook the blessing of victory. And so really David's making the argument that the spoils of war that they're arguing about is really a lesser blessing anyway. Your life and victory over the enemy are far more important than 
goats and cows and things like that. Since the victory was the Lord's, David and his men couldn't take credit for it. And so therefore, the men who stayed with the supplies were no less important than the frontline soldiers. And so David decreed that their portion would be the same as the men who fought. And that became a standing statute in Israel. Because who's going to be the next king? David. He's got every right to make that statute. Well, you could apply that a little bit to a church, I guess, and that we all serve maybe in different areas, do different things. But we're in this for the same purpose, and it's God who brings the blessings. Not me or you or anyone else. Paul said God gives the increase. Somebody may plant, somebody else may water, but God gives the increase. In the, in the life of David's men here, and we see it sometimes in, in, in our world as well, when, some, when there's wealth in question, it seems to promote greed. There's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with being rich. But don't be selfish with it. Don't trust it. Don't be greedy because of it. And sometimes greed can be disguised as fairness. You say, what? What are you talking about? In Luke chapter 12, there was a man that came to Jesus and he told Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Well, that sounds fair, right? That sounds reasonable. Someone's wanting the, the inheritance to be divided between he and his brother, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. He wanted things to be fair. But Jesus told him, he said, take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This man was at his very heart greedy and covetousness. And that was cloaked in, I just want things to be fair. There's nothing wrong with the inheritance being divided, with it, quote, being fair. Jesus wasn't against fairness or things being done the right way. But Jesus was teaching this man that there are far more important things in life than things. Your life is not about the abundance of your possessions. So if you're well off in this life, be thankful and be generous. If you're not well off in this life, guess what? Realize that there are better things than things. And that's kind of what David is teaching his men here as well. Look, these men may not have fought like you did. You may feel it isn't fair for them to receive the same inheritance that you did. But they're part of us. And God gave us this. You didn't earn it. You didn't, you didn't win it. God gave it to you. So quit being greedy about stuff. And let's show some grace to these men who you feel like they don't deserve it. So look at verse 26 through 31. The story ends as these David and his men return home, and they, they show even more mercy and grace to other people. Verse 26. When David came to Ziklag, he sent of the spoil unto the elders of Judah. Even to his friends, saying, Behold, a present for you of the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. To them which were in Bethel, and to them which were in South Ramoth, and to them which were in Jatir, and to them which were in Aror, and to them which were in Sifmoth, and to them which were in Eshtemoah, and to them which were in Rakal, and to them which were in the cities of the Jeremilites, and to them which were in the cities of the Kenites, and to them which were, in the, uh, which were in Hormah, and to them which were in Korishon, and to them which were in Atak, and to them which were in Hebron, and to all the places where David himself and his men were wont to haunt. 
if those men weren't ready to give some of the spoils to the other 200 men in their group, how do you think they feel about David giving it all away to these other cities? We could have been rich if it wasn't for David's goodness. It wasn't for his mercy. Man, I'd have so many camels and goats and I'd have to worry about nothing. Back in verse 26, it specifically mentions David giving this spoil to the elders of Judah. And it's specifically labeled as spoil of the enemies of the Lord. Saul is still technically the king of Israel for maybe one more night. (laughs) He's about to die. And yet it's David who is defeating the Lord's enemies. And it's David who is blessing the Jews with goods from from these wars. David's the one bringing these blessings to the people of Judah, not Saul. There's a common theme throughout the rest of this chapter that we looked at this morning, running through these verses. First, David and the Egyptian slave. Then David and the group of men who didn't fight. Then David and these cities who haven't done anything to help him. In all three of these circumstances, with all three groups, David showed mercy and grace and love, even though they didn't deserve it. Why, why was David able to do this? How, how, do you, how do you summon that kind of heart? Especially when you're in the midst of a trial. Especially with the Egyptian slave. When you're running down the Amalekites to try and rescue your family and you pause to show this, this slave mercy? How do you do that? How can you stand up for men who didn't fight for you or help people who haven't helped you because you had to run to Philistia to get away from Saul? How can David do that? It's because God just did it for him. God had just mercifully removed David from one situation and graciously sustained him in another. And so God's mercy and grace changed David. And so now even though he's going through a terrible trial of his own, David extends the same kind of love and mercy and grace to other groups of people who have no reason to expect it. They don't deserve it. They didn't help in any way. I mentioned Saul earlier in our sermon. Not King Saul, but Saul of Tarsus. You know, when he was changed, and he, his name was even changed to Paul. One thing that changed in Paul's life when he experienced God's mercy was instead of hurting others, he started being the one who was hurt. Remember, he he was persecuted. Paul suffered for Christ, and there was many times in his life he quite literally hurt. He suffered, he was imprisoned, he was hurting, and yet during those times he was still living for the benefit of other people. You can read some of his writings in Philippians. He's imprisoned, and yet he is worried about them, trying to encourage them and help them. He is helping while he is hurting, and that's what David is doing here. When we really and truly grasp and realize in our lives what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, it should drastically change the way you treat other people. We are completely unworthy of God's blessings. Not one of us sitting here today is a good person who deserves anything good from God. We are all sinners who fall short of God's glory. Every one of us. 
We all deserve the punishment of hell for our disobedience. And yet, what did God do about that? He sent His Son to take our place. We didn't deserve it, but that's how awesome God is. And that's how much He loves you. If you've never repented of your sins and trusted Christ to save you, He absolutely will if you will repent and trust Him. It's an individual decision that you must make. Nobody can make it for you. If that's something that you need to talk about this morning, you can come forward during our invitation or you can grab my arm on the way out. You let me know or any other man here. Maybe you need to talk about baptism. Maybe you've been saved and have never been scripturally immersed. Maybe you feel like the Lord's leading you to join this church. Come forward and talk to me about it or let me know on the way out. I want to meet with you sometime, Brother Matt. When God's mercy and grace gets a hold of you, it ought to change the way you treat other people. Just like it did in David's life. Just like it did in Paul's life. Treat other people the way Christ has treated you. Let's bow for a word of prayer as we prepare for an invitation. Father, thank you so much for this day that we can be here and worship you. We, once again, we thank you for your word and the lessons we draw from it and the truth that's in it. God, thank you for David's life and his example. Help us to, even when we're hurting, Lord, help us to realize your mercy and grace in our lives and, and demonstrate that to others. And use, use us as witnesses, Lord, for your glory and your kingdom. We pray that everything we do will point others to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.